Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 57, the Game 1 Bucks showed up for Game 3, and it was not fun, and nobody had a good time the end. They're in a tough spot now. Game four coming up tonight. Nothing's a must win until you're playing a game where if you lose, your season is over. But this is about as close as it gets. That's on the way from Miami. Will Giannis play? Will he not play? We'll talk about that, even though we don't have a whole lot of information at this moment. Brewers drop a series to the Red Sox over the weekend. Bullpen finally had a few backfires. They're going to do that. They were one of the best in Major League Baseball. They'll be all right. They start a series with the Tigers tonight at AmFam Field. And it's NFL Draft Week. It feels as though there's not even a simmer when it comes to Aaron Rodgers potentially being traded this week. We are four days away, 90 hours away from round one on Thursday, and there's a whole lot of nothing going on. We'll break that down, too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, And there is your Super Bowl dagger! Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle foul, throws it down! Swinging fly ball in the right center, Broxton is there, and they're the champions! They have done it! It's been a 50-year journey, Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, the Bucks on Saturday night. That was tough. That was a tough, tough watch. I felt like the personification, well, it's not personification if this is an actual person, right? This is already a personification of a person. I'm straight up not having a Bro, good time. Bro, I'm straight up not having a good time. That was all Bro, life. I'm straight up not having a good time. Well, they did jump out to the 21 to 15 lead. And at that point, I actually did have a pretty good time. Bro, I was having a pretty good time at that juncture. Drew Holiday was hitting shots, and it did look in that first five or six minutes like they came to play, and they had that 21-15 to 15 lead. And after that, one of the Heat rip off a 14-0 run, and the Bucks made a few runs at it during the course of the night to try to get it close, to get it to 10. They had that one spot at the end of the second quarter where they were down nine and had the ball, and Jay Crowder... Oh, that pickup. That is going the way of Marvin Williams. That's going the way of Nikola Miritich. That's going the way of a lot of recent deadline day acquisitions that just have not turned out the way that you thought they would. He's had a few good spots in the regular season. He has not had a good series. At no point have there been highlights in the first three games of this series, but he had a shot at a runner in the lane. He easily could have gotten it to Brook too right at the rim, but it's a makeable shot. He was three or four feet away for a floater. He misses that. The Heat come back the other way. Caleb Martin being defended by Connaughton for the eight millionth time this season. The Bucks dip below his screen outside the arc. Martin had a wide open look at a three and drilled it. Just that whole sequence of a Jay Crowder miss dipping under his screen, wide open three, and a Miami Heat player who is not historically a good three-point shooter drains it. All of a sudden, what could have been a seven-point game becomes a 13-point game. 
that felt like the real tipping point, even though they were only down at 13 at halftime. And in the NBA, 13 isn't much. You go on a good run for three or four minutes and you're right back in it or you're up. It just felt like that was the moment. That was the moment where you needed it to happen. It didn't happen. And they got it down to 10-ish a few times in the second half, but never really got that close. Ultimately, end up getting their doors blown off in game three. And we're going to talk about the game first. Then we're going to talk about Giannis. Giannis did not play on Saturday. I'm not sure what my expectations were that he was going to play on Saturday. If we go back to Friday's pod, what did Friday John say? I'm pretty sure Friday John felt like he was not going to play. And he didn't play on Saturday. But we're going to talk more about the Giannis subplot coming up because we have to break this down in two ways. But first, talk about the game. They just didn't do anything they did in Game 2. We talked on Friday's podcast about what happened at the beginning of Game 2. Two guys set the tone. Bobby Portis set the tone for the attitude of the team. He brought the aggression, the trash talking, the mean mugging, the letting the Heat players know that this was not going to be a tip throw to the tulips like Game 1 was. He brought that intensity that set the attitude of the game. And then in terms of the actual schematics of the game, Brooke Lopez dominated in the first quarter. We talked coming out of game one about how big of an advantage they have on the inside. Bam Adebayo is the only size the Heat have, and while he's an okay shot blocker, he is not a really physical defender, and he's not as tall as Brooke is. They have an advantage inside. Exploited that in game two. That set the tone for how the game was going to play out, and that opened everything up. That's how that game went in game two. Everybody talks about the 25 threes they knocked down and it tied the NBA record. The first quarter was all about establishing Brooke Lopez in the post or any of the bigger players, Bobby Portis too a little bit in that first quarter, establishing at the rim. And then all of those threes that they knocked down the rest of the game were under a lot less duress because they established that we can score at the rim when we have to. They have to respect that. And those shots became a lot more open outside the arc and they went nuts from beyond the arc. But without establishing the paint in the first quarter, I don't think we're talking coming out of game two about tying an NBA record with 25 threes in a playoff game. They did neither of those things on Saturday. For what reason? I have no idea. They didn't bring the intensity. Bobby didn't bring the intensity. The whole team didn't bring the intensity. Maybe Bobby is the tone setter and he has to be the guy. You feel like at this level with the guys cashing the kind of checks they are not to be the guy, not to be the sports fan who's pointing to the paycheck. That's a very easy thing to point to. We've been over that on several podcasts. But when you're making that kind of money and you're that elite level of an athlete, you feel like you can motivate yourself, right? You had to to get to this point, to get to the NBA, to get to the top tier of this profession where only .0004% people ever get. But maybe Bobby does have to be the guy. Maybe they do need that one guy in the first five or six or seven or eight minutes or in the first quarter to establish the way that they're going to play, the mentality they're going to play with in that game. It just didn't happen, and then they didn't establish the inside at all. I don't think Brooke Lopez did anything in this game, maybe a few at the rim in the second half, but at no point did they try to get Brooke Lopez the ball inside. The Heat did make a defensive adjustment. They put Kevin Love in the starting five, but again, Kevin Love is a ghost of Kevin Love from 2016, and he is not as big as Brooke. They put more size in the starting five, but that's not enough size to deal with Brooke, to deal with Bobby, to deal with some of the bigs the Bucks have, even without Giannis. At no juncture did anybody get the ball to Brooke, it felt like, in the first two quarters to bring anybody in the paint where he can score on them at the rim, bring that type of style to the game, and then try to open things up from beyond the arc. I will say Richard Jefferson, the color analyst on the game on Saturday, he brought up a good point. Drew Holiday hit his first four shots, and a lot of those were perimeter shots. 
And it's almost like that was a bad thing for the Bucks, even though in that moment I'm thinking, ooh, Drew's on one tonight. Drew could be a guy who gives you 30 or 35 tonight. In retrospect, when you look at it, and I know hindsight's 2020, when you look back at that, it perhaps led the Bucks to feeling like, all right, we're just going to make shots. We're going to make perimeter shots. We're going to make three-point shots the way that we made them in game two because Drew started hitting early, and then everybody on the team seemed to fall in love with one-on-one dribbling and one-on-one step-back threes and deep two-point shots, and they went away from the things that were successful around the rim in game two. It was an interesting point. Now, you would hope at an NBA level, once those shots stopped going down and at that 21-15 to moment when the Heat ripped off a 14-0 run and took a double-digit lead, those shots stopped going down, you would hope during the course of a timeout, Coach Bud or Drew or Chris would say, okay, we're not making the shots anymore. We made them in the first five minutes. We're down 12 points. It's very early. There is plenty of time to get back to the style of play we went with in game two. Let's get a set play right out of this timeout, a set play for Brooke Lopez. Make sure we find a way to get him the ball one-on-one, score inside, dump it in there a few more times, and basically shake the etch sketch and start over. Erase the blackboard and start the whole game over because being down 13 or 14 or whatever they were at that point early in the second quarter, that's nothing in the NBA. You can blow out the cartridge and hit the reset button, and start the whole game over and try to start with what you should have started with, and that is what you did in game two, getting Brooke and getting Bobby the ball at the rim. But it didn't happen. They just fell in love the whole night with these perimeter jump shots. And although the percentages weren't awful by the end of the game, they shot 45% and 39% from beyond the arc. Those are not terrible numbers. But the style of play they had, it was so much one-on-one. They weren't sharing the ball. Another part of game two was the assist-to-basket-made ratio. They had 35 assists on 53 made baskets in game two. Not even close to that in game three. And it also led to turnovers. All that one-on-one play, eventually the Heat noticed that and started blitzing Middleton and Drew when they would get in these one-on-one situations. They double-teamed them, and it led to so many turnovers, so many bad passes and deflected balls. I'm 10. I giggled. I'm sorry. In my brain, I giggled. What can you do? I am what I am. But it led to all that. 18 turnovers. 18 turnovers in an NBA game. I call Division Three basketball a lot. I call Division Two basketball a lot. As you would expect, the level of play is not quite as high or even close to Division One or the NBA. I call D3 games where teams have less turnovers. 18 turnovers by the number one team in the NBA – In the playoffs, you just, the Heats are a solid defensive team. Take nothing away from their defense for as bad as they were offensively during the regular season, even though they've been extraordinary so far without, with the exception of game two. We'll talk about that in a second, but they have been a solid defensive team all year. So you do have to give them some credit, but 18 turnovers, five from Middleton, five from Drew. These are the guys that you're filtering all of your offense through. It's inexcusable. You can't have it. They missed free throws. They didn't shoot a ton. That's a Giannis impact, too. They only shot 12 free throws, but Giannis is a guy who, if he's playing healthy and playing a full game, he'll give you 10 to 12 free throw attempts. That tips the scales in any game. Take that away, and you're going to shoot less free throws. They were 7 of 12. A lot of spots where if they make a free throw here or there, you get it down to a six- or seven-point game or an eight-point game, but they just couldn't hit those. It was a mess. And then defensively, they have to adjust, don't they? I keep saying this. They have to adjust. Even though they won game two in blowout fashion, the Heat still scored a lot of points and shot very well. We can talk all we want, and we have been, and all the Bucks beat reporters and the coaches have been talking about it. 
how the Heat threw 84 games, 82 regular season games, and the two playing games. They shot 33% as a team from beyond the arc. In the modern-day NBA, in 1995 NBA, when I was watching triple headers on the NBA on NBC and I was 11 years old, that was remarkable shooting. That would have been top-level shooting with the way the game has morphed now into a three-point shooting game. As a team, over 84 games to shoot 33% is pretty putrid. They were ranked 27th in the league in the NBA in three-point shooting. Well, in game one, they shot 60%. And we all said, oh, it's an outlier. Every team has players. Every team can shoot really well one night. And then in game two, it was shrouded by the fact that the Bucks won and won handily, but they shot 45% from beyond the arc. Still a pretty damn good percentage, right? And then in game three, they were shooting 63% in the first half and shot 51% for the game from beyond the arc. At what point is this no longer an outlier? And at what point is it the Bucks' defensive strategy that is allowing for all of these open looks? And the Bucks are saying and have been saying, look, we're going to give you threes. We're going to lock down the paint. We're going to give you some looks from beyond the arc. And we are betting that you are not going to shoot well over the course of a seven-game series. We are betting that you are what your percentages say you are, and you're a 33% shooting team. Well, at some point now down 2-1 to one, with your backs just about against the wall, don't you have to adjust this drop defense in the lane where they set a screen and then you get Lowry or Oladipo is hurt now, but you get Lowry or Oladipo or Jimmy Butler. They take the screen. They go to the free throw line. Brooke or Bobby are in the middle. They drop under the basket for some reason, and it leads to a wide-open 12-footer, and that's a layup for those guys. Those are wide-open free throw shots, and it happens over and over and over again. And going back to that one part of the game in the second quarter with the Jay Miss and the Caleb Martin three, that dipping under screens, that's been happening all series where they're giving them open looks at a three, and the Heat are drilling them. How many times are you going to play with fire? Are we going to come out in game four with the same strategy, hoping the Heat miss these shots? Or are you going to come up with a different strategy where you're challenging and putting a hand in their face and maybe you give up something underneath then or maybe you're more prone to giving up something toward the basket? But you cannot live with a team shooting 45-plus percent from beyond the arc. You're not going to win any of those games. It's kind of remarkable they won game two. The Bucks just shot so well in that game that they outshot a good shooting team. But I just, they can't come into tonight, right? Just hoping that they regress back to the norm. At some point, you are the problem. The defense is the problem. And if you give NBA players that many open looks, or Jimmy Butler, who is not a good three-point shooter, although this year statistically was one of his best years from beyond the arc, he has been pretty good this year. He was in the mid-30s percentage-wise. A lot of times in his career, Jimmy was sort of like Giannis from beyond the arc, where he was sub-30%, 27 28% from beyond the arc. He has gotten better because he's had to adapt his game because that's what the NBA game has become, and it's adapt or die. He had to become a better three-point shooter, and he did this year. But he was 4-4 four, four from beyond the arc. If you go back... They were daring him. They didn't even move up on him an inch. Drew Holiday was three feet off of him and basically staring at him and daring him to shoot, and he hit all four. At what point do you say enough is enough? You've got to get up on him and put a hand in his face and challenge the at least challenge the shot. Right now they're just staring at him and hoping that he misses. It makes no sense. Hopefully the Bucks will come and tinker with the defensive strategy. I don't need a whole overhaul. The Bucks all year were a top-five defensive team, and actually this year they've challenged threes better than they have at any point during Bud's era. 
but they have to do something differently coming into tonight. I don't think at this point, down 2-1 to one, with the risk of going down 3-1, to one, that you can just roll the dice. I love gambling. Don't get me wrong. I love gambling. But you cannot do that in a game where you could potentially fall down 3-1 on the road. They have to challenge more shots tonight, I would think. But it was just a mess of a game top to bottom, and they get blown out and are now in a spot where you're down 2-1. to one. Now, look. We said on Friday's podcast, you've got to get one in Miami. You have another chance tonight. I don't think the Bucs are losing any more home games in this series. Even if you lose tonight, the Bucs will win game five at home, and then you'd have another shot to win in Miami in game six. But if you just take tonight, you take back home court. This series is going minimum six now, and it looks like it's probably going seven unless Giannis comes back and he's close to healthy tonight. If Giannis comes back and is reasonably healthy, 75%, 80%, the Bucks can easily win three in a row, and it could be the prophecy fulfilled. Where's my Bucks in six? Here it is. How many games? Six. We're gonna be. We're gonna win in six. Well, I mean, Bucks in six. I'm- I did have somebody text the station this morning and say, "John, be honest, the Bucks in trouble." I said, "In trouble? In trouble? This team? They're they're perfectly set up for the prophecy of Bucks in six. You can't win in six without losing two. That's a big part of it. If Giannis comes back and is reasonably healthy and can do most of the stuff that he's accustomed to doing." with no Oladipo now for the Heat and with no Tyler Hero for the Heat. And Jimmy Butler took a hard fall at the end of Game 3, and he's on the injury report for the Heat. He's going to play, but he took he took a pretty hard shot, similar to Giannis, not the tailbone. It's in the glute, in the more meaty part of it. But he is listed technically as questionable tonight as well. With all of the injuries the Heat are dealing with, if Giannis can come back at 80%, they can easily win three games in a row and win this in six. But it's looking like we're probably headed toward a seven-game series, so you have a chance tonight to just take back home court, and I don't think if you do that, I do not think this team would lose game five at home. And if they end up in game seven, I don't believe they'd lose game seven at home. Now, in terms of Giannis, we're going to find out tonight how bad this injury is. A lot of Bucks fans seem to think going into game three when he was listed as out, and this crossed my mind too, that they're holding him out because they think they can beat the Heat without Giannis, and they're trying to give Giannis as much time as possible to get as close to 100% as he can get when you look at the bigger picture and a longer playoff run. Well, now that you lost that game, now you're in a bad spot down 2-1. to one. He's on the trip. He made the flight. I would think he's close to playing. Why would you mess with him coming on a plane and sitting on a plane and being on the sideline if he was not close to playing? My guess would be now that you're in a much worse spot. If he was close to playing on Saturday, he will play tonight. If he does not play tonight, then this injury is much more impactful than we thought it was going to be. And it was a nasty fall. It was a hard fall. And Giannis is a little bit of a victim of his own expectations here because we think of him being indestructible. We think of his knee bending in the wrong direction in Game 4 in Atlanta in 2021 and him coming back eight days later and playing 40 minutes in a playoff game and putting up 35 points against the Phoenix Suns and then all the other extraordinary things that he was able to do in that series with the knee pain he had. And for most of his career, every time he goes down the way he did in Game 1, he's able to get up, and he almost did it in Game 1, but he clearly didn't look good. But most of his career, 95% of it, he is the Terminator. Every time you take a shot, he's able to shake it off, get back up, and get back out there. That has not been the case with this injury. And if he's not playing tonight, then we know it's a pretty serious thing. But he has just set that expectation bar, expectation management. I always talk about it. If I could give one high school lecture to the up-and-coming adults in the world, there is no bigger thing to wrap your mind around than expectation management. (laughs) Set the expectations collegiately. If you're going to college, set the expectations in the workplace. What people can expect from you. Don't set them too high because 
then that was what the expectation bar is. And because Giannis has been able to do that and shake off what looked to be catastrophic injuries, we're expecting him to do that. If he's not out there tonight when you're down 2-1 and you're on the road and you're under threat of being down 3-1, then we know this injury is fairly serious and we may not see him for the duration of the season or the duration of the series. Now, I still, even with as bad as they looked in Game 3, I still think this Bucks team can and should beat Miami without Giannis. You win tonight, you even the series, you get back home court, you take control of the series in Game 5, then you have a little room for error in Game 6 back in Miami. But even without Giannis, this Bucks team, this iteration of it, should be able to beat the Heat. And I say that even having watched every minute of that disaster, that dumpster fire, that train wreck on Saturday. We shall see. By the time you listen to this podcast, we may know. I'm recording this at 9.51. Let me just go to Eric Names' Twitter page here to make sure that I'm not missing anything in the moment that we have an update on Giannis. I would not guess injury reports. He's questionable. He was questionable heading into Saturday. They have to give him that injury designation. A doubtful injury designation in the playoffs means that he cannot play. No, there's no update. By the time you listen to this, again, we're recording this around 10 a.m. on Monday. The game is at 6.30. Thank God. No 8 o'clock tip time tonight. Thank you, God. But by the time you listen to this, you may we may already know whether or not Giannis is going to play. He clearly tilts the series, the best player on the planet. Shocking revelation there, John. But if he's able to go at 70%, 75% tonight, the Bucks should win tonight. They'll win on Wednesday, and then they should end this on Saturday if he's a go. If he's not a go, I think we're staring down a seven-game series that the Bucks are going to have to grind out. And just before we move on to the Brewers, I do want to throw out a couple of notes of history because I know all on the broadcast on ESPN on Saturday they were talking about how pivotal Game 3 is, and in 180 NBA series, when the series is tied at 1, the winner of Game 3 won 124 of the 180 or whatever the numbers were. 75% of the time, the winner of Game 3 in a 1-1 series goes on to win the series. This is the most important game of the series. Well, statistically, yeah, that could be true. The team that wins Game 3 wins a lot of the time. But let's not forget, the Bucks were up 2-1, to one, and they took Game 3 against the Celtics last year. Didn't win that series. And there's two teams in relatively recent memory I want to revisit. 2008, is that recent? 15 years ago? What's our window on recent? In 2008, the Boston Celtics, that was the year with Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, the big three. And they won the title that year. And they won 66 regular season games. The Bucks had the best regular season record this year, 58 wins. The Celtics went 66-16 and 16 that year. They were the number one seed. They took on the Atlanta Hawks in round one. The Atlanta Hawks were 37-45. and 45. Eight games under 500 in the regular season. The best team in the league with 66 wins. The worst team in the playoffs with 37 wins. And that series went seven games. That went the distance. The Celtics blew them out in game seven back in Boston. But in a series on paper that looked like it was going to be a clear Boston route, a Boston tea party, a Boston sweep party, that series went seven and the Celtics had to grind everything out, and they eventually go on and win the title. They actually went seven the next round, too. They earned that playoff run. And then a little more recent, 2014, nine years ago, the San Antonio Spurs were the overall number one seed. In the first round, they played a barely above 500 Dallas Mavericks team, and that series also went seven, and the Spurs in game seven at home blew the Mavericks up. But that was another series where the best team in the league with the most talented, deep roster – 
had to go the full seven against a barely 500 team in the first round. These things happen. Don't let how this series plays out. Hopefully the Bucks are able to win it. I think they will. I'm confident they're going to get it turned around tonight. But don't let a tough first-round series jade you for other matchups down the road because it's going to be very easy. If the Bucks win this in seven, it's going to be very easy for the fans who wilt, for the fans who fall apart in the face of adversity. It's going to be very easy for those fans to say, well, you barely got by the eight seed. I don't see how you're going to be able to bleed. And that's how it's going to go. That's how it's going to go. That's sports radio, by the way. I just did a sports radio bit for you. It's not a bit. It's real. But it's going to be very easy for that portion of the fan base, if the Bucks win this in seven, for them to say, well, they barely got by the Heat. There's no chance they get by the Knicks in the second round, or there's no chance they get by Boston and get to the NBA Finals. And if they even get there, they're never – just don't let one series and one matchup impact how you see a more macro view or a more long view of what this team's title chances are. Some years, the best team in the NBA – does a Cadillac dance all the way to the NBA Finals. I remember there was a Lakers year there with Kobe and Shaq where I don't think they lost a game. They lost one game before the NBA Finals. Some years it goes that way. You sweep the first two teams you face, you go to five in the championship series, and then you have a more difficult matchup in the NBA Finals. And then there's some years like the two we just described where the best team in the league has to gut everything out and every series goes six or seven, and it kills slowly the fan base. It hurts everybody's mental health, but eventually they get to the finish line and end up where they felt like they were supposed to be as champions. It differs every year. Game three or game four. We don't want to relive game three, John. We don't want to do that. Game four tonight, 6.30 tip time from Miami. It's back on TNT, so we get the Chuck and Shaq and Ernie and the Jet Show. That was awful on ESPN on Saturday, too. Everything about Saturday stunk. Back on TNT tonight. Hey, podcast listener, it's John. Thanks, John. 20 minutes after I clicked publish on this podcast, even though I checked the Eric name Twitter as I was recording it, 23 minutes after I clicked publish on this, Giannis is back. He's at the shoot around, and then the Shams tweet came out and said, barring any major setback, Giannis is back tonight in game four. The gambling line went from minus four to minus seven. As soon as that happened, I scrambled to Twitter. Giannis is back Baby, Bucks in six. Take it away, John. All right, let's talk about the Brewers. Tough series over the weekend with Boston. They lose on Friday. Freddie Peralta, kind of an uneven start. Saturday, they get the win, 5-4. to four. Devin Williams gets the save. That was the lone bright spot on Saturday night. And then yesterday, had a 4-3 lead in the eighth inning. Big day from Brian Anderson, two home runs. Another pretty good day from Yelly. Yelly's hitting 250. He's had a couple of nice hits in the series. Had an RBI single yesterday after being down 3 0 to take a 4 3 lead. It's the eighth inning. Okay, it's the bridge inning. Let's get to Devin and get a series win. But Matt Bush came in and just blew up. He faces Justin Turner, old Brewer friend from LA. He hits the game tying home run. Next batter hits the go ahead home run. And then the wheels just came off. They give up nine runs in that inning between Bush and Javi Guerra combined. This bullpen is going to have blow ups statistically heading into Sunday, one of the best bullpens in Major League Baseball, top three ERA, and going into the weekend, they were number one in terms of bullpen ERA. I think they were number three heading into Sunday. They had another kind of uneven bullpen performance on Friday. Freddie left. They had the lead, and the runners were his, but it was the bullpen that gave up the inherited runners. They're going to have spots like this. Again, the bullpen has been surprisingly good. The bullpen we thought going into the year was going to be a bit of a weakness. It's going to even out over the course of time, and hopefully we see more good than bad, but they're not going to have a sub-2 ERA like they had heading into Friday all year. 
and it was just a bad, bad spot, and Bush and Guerra could not get an out. I know a lot of people don't want to see Matt Bush anymore. Let's just relax. He didn't have a great year last year after he came over in the trade from Texas. He was good a little bit of the time and not good a lot of bit of the time down the stretch. This year he's made nine appearances. Six of those appearances he has not given up a run. And in three of them he has. And when you're a relief pitcher like yesterday and you give up four runs and you only record one out, your ERA is going to suffer for months. It's just going to take him a while to whittle that down. It's easy to look at his stats and see an ERA above eight and say get rid of him. But nine appearances, six of those he is unscored upon. Three of them have not been great. He did get the save in Seattle, and he got them out of a major jam in the final day in Seattle where they had the bases loaded with one out. He got both outs without giving up another run and got them that sweep win in Seattle, the final game of that road trip. I don't want to cut bait on anybody just yet, and I don't want to cut bait on a guy who can throw 95 to 98 miles per hour on a fastball consistently. His problem is it's straight as a string. He has very little movement on his fastball. There are not a lot of guys that can throw as hard as Matt Bush does, but Matt Bush does not have a lot of movement on that fastball. Now, when that fastball is up in the zone, most baseball coaches that I've talked to or covered over the years will tell you, when you have an elite fastball, which Matt Bush does, when you have an elite fastball but it's straight, you have to keep it higher in the zone because then it has a rise. There's a rise to it that changes the eye level of the hitter. If you have a straight fastball and you're throwing it middle of the plate or right down in the bottom half of the zone but straight down toward the knees, those are very easy pitches regardless of how hard they throw them. That's why sometimes you see guys that throw 100 miles an hour, but if it's straight as a string and it's in the middle or lower half of the zone, that's easy for a Major League Baseball player to see and hit. You've got to be in the top half of the zone or at the top of the zone to change their eye level. If he can get back to doing that, which he has for most of his career – he can be an effective pitcher. Maybe you take him out of that eighth inning role and keep Stress Lucky in there. That seems to be what they're doing right now anyway. But maybe a more firm move in that direction now with how things went yesterday. But I don't want to cut bait on Matt Bush yet. I don't want to release him or trade him or whatever. I know a lot of Brewer fan pages on Facebook and Twitter are going nuts about that. But I don't really feel like at this point it's April 24th. I don't know that you want to just put a 98-mile-per-hour fastball guy on the waiver wire and when you could maybe use him later in the year. See if you can get things worked out. Maybe send him off to whatever that pitching lab is down in Arizona they have where they reconfigure everybody and they come back looking like a different guy. Maybe they do that for a while. I don't know. Maybe he goes down there for a month or two. But I don't know if I want to cut bait on a guy like that just yet. Bad game yesterday. 12-5 to loss. They lose the series. Only their second series loss of the year. The other tough news on Friday was Garrett Mitchell. When he slid into third in Seattle, it didn't look great, and then he played defense, tried to throw one in from center field, looked to be in a lot of pain. They thought initially it was going to be fairly minor, a lot like the Brandon Woodruff injury. The moment that gave me a step back was when they compared it to the Jimmy Nelson injury. Remember Jimmy Nelson and that fateful slide back into first at Wrigley Field in 2017? What a career he could have had. He was having such a good year that year and the year before. And he slid back into first base at Wrigley Field late in the year that year, damaged his shoulder, and was never the same. I don't think he's in baseball anymore. He was in L.A. for a while as a relief pitcher. I don't think he's around anymore. What a sad ending to that career. That could be a guy that's still in Milwaukee. I mean, that could be a guy. He wasn't old, and that wasn't that long ago. He could have been a guy that you threw a long-term extension at that would win you 14 or 15 games a year. He kind of looked like Brandon Woodruff. They were very similar. But when I heard them compare it to the Jimmy Nelson injury, I had that moment of, oh, are we sure this is not too serious? Because that was pretty serious. And I get it. Jimmy Nelson's a pitcher. He uses his shoulder a lot more than Garrett Mitchell. It's a much bigger injury for a pitcher to try to overcome because of the wear and tear on the shoulder and the elbow. 
But when I heard them compare it to that, I thought, well, that doesn't sound minor. <laughs> that doesn't sound minor to me. It basically ended Jimmy Nelson's career. And sure enough, they came back on Friday. He had an MRI, and it's going to be requiring surgery. He was kind of optimistic that if at the end of the year, if everything goes right, if all of the things go his way with rehab and surgery, that he could maybe still be a factor in late August or September if they're making a pennant push, which we hope they are. In all likelihood, his season is done. This was my initial reaction as soon as I saw that news on Friday. Because everything's been going so good for the Brewers, why must there always be a problem? Why must there always be a problem? Why? <laughs> if they just once, I could get a break. There's always a problem. And in the worst part about it is how much we've talked about this youth infusion and how much that's helped this team not only on the field but in terms of locker room chemistry and lifting the dark cloud of the way 2022 ended. Of course, it had to be one of those guys. It had to be one of the new guys too. Now, the silver lining is the Brewers have a ton of outfield depth at the minor league level and some at the major league level. If you were going to sustain an injury to an everyday player, outfield is probably where you want it to be. You've got Sal Freilich. He's on the DL or IL, excuse me. IL with a thumb injury at AAA Nashville. Sal Freilich is a guy who is a higher rated prospect than Mitchell, than Terang, than Weimer. So you see what these guys are doing, and Freilich's even a higher rated prospect than that. You also have Jackson Churio, who's tearing up double-A, number one prospect in baseball. Tore up rookie ball in single-A last year, tearing up double-A this year. We're not going to see Churio this year, but we might see him next year. He might be a guy who's already at the major league level at 20 years old next year. I don't think we're going to see him this year. But Freilich, when he is back from that thumb injury, it feels very likely he will be the guy who will get the call up, and then you'll add him in with Weimer and Terang. You've got another guy there, and Tyrone Taylor. I know some fans are kind of out on Tyrone. He's fine. He's fine. He's going to hit you 245 or 250. If he gets the at-bats, he'll hit you 15 to 20 home runs. He's athletic. He's got some speed in the outfield. Not an elite outfielder like Lorenzo Cain, but he is good enough in the outfield, and that gives you decent depth. He is going to be on his rehab assignment, it sounds like, at the end of the month and could be ready to go by May. You have guys that can fill that spot as big of a loss as Garrett Mitchell is. Start a three-game set with Detroit tonight. 6.40 first pitch. Big night tonight. 6.30 Bucks game. 6.40 Brewer game at Ampham Field. Colin Ray will be making his third spot start in place of Brandon Woodruff later on this evening. And it's draft week. I don't know. There's nothing. I mean, there's just nothing. There is not a single tangible rumor. There's not a shred or a whiff of anything going on with Aaron Rodgers getting traded this week. We are four days away, less than four days away from day one of the draft on Thursday. I don't know. When we record our Friday podcast, is Aaron Rodgers still going to be a Packer? I'd say 99% yes. And I don't know if we have anything else to add on this podcast to that. There's just there's nothing. There has not been anything. Maybe that picks up on Wednesday when they get close to the draft getting underway on Thursday. Maybe during the day on Thursday before the first round or after the first round if the Packers are looking at getting a day two pick for Rodgers where they'd get a second or third rounder to use on Friday. Maybe there's a rumor there, but... It just feels like still water right now. There's not a wave. There's not a bump. There's not a crest. There's nothing going on right now. We'll see. When I click record on this podcast on Friday, my feeling is he's probably still going to be a Packer, and we're going to be dealing with this for another four or five weeks. Have a good work week. Let's go Bucks. Bucks lost. Bucks in six. Let's get a win tonight, boys. We'll recap that, and we'll be recapping two games on Friday morning. By the time we get there, we'll have games four and five, and we'll have a much clearer picture of how much work the Bucks have to do. Their season will not be over on Friday. We'll have a much clearer picture of what they have to do on Friday, and maybe we'll know more about Aaron Rodgers. We'll be talking about whatever pick the Packers make in the first round on Friday morning, and hopefully a good series win over Detroit for the Brewers this week. We'll talk at you then.